This is the EPFR Exchange Podcast. All opinions expressed by Cam, Kirsten, or our podcast guests are solely of their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of EPFR. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the EPFR Exchange Podcast. My name is Kirsten Longbottom, and we are joined by EPFR's Director of Research, Cameron Brandt. Last week, we dove into money market funds through our EPFR and iMoneyNet databases and discussed investor interest for those liquid investments. Um, This week, we're going to dive into our developed markets equity and bond funds a little bit. So on Sunday this past week, Saudi Arabia and other OPEC oil produced announced that they would be cutting oil outputs by over 1 million barrels per day. Some say these are proactive steps in case there's a strong economic downturn and a decrease in demand. Others, including um, U.S. President Biden, reflected that it was unwise and that we need to create lower, not higher prices. Can you shed a bit of light to both of these sides of the argument? Well, you know, in the short run uh it's it's a somewhat logical move and so is biden's response um Oil prices have been coming under pressure from uh, expectations that the economic growth is going to be uh much weaker uh, in the second half of the year and that there's a fairly good chance we won't get the soft landing in the u s and europe that uh investors have been hoping for. But I think, uh, you know, in, in short term, obviously, a spike in energy prices sort of keeps inflationary expectations high. And uh, Biden, with an election not that far in the future, uh, is understandably uh, hoping that uh, the opposite dynamic will get a hold. But longer term, uh, I mean, I think uh, (laughs) it's more a a reflection of a weakness in OPEC's position. I don't think it can have escaped their notice that uh, Russia made good on its threats to basically shut Europe off from most of uh, Russia's energy exports uh, and Russia, uh, Europe survived. Um, And, you know, broader trends, that uh, geopolitical dynamic uh, has consequences for OPEC because Russia needs a place to sell its oil. Um, Destination of choice is China, which is getting lots of Russian oil at the discount. Therefore, China's rebound, which I suspect will be a little less overwhelming than uh, many thought or hoped at the beginning of the year, um, will not have the same impact on uh, global oil prices that it might have in previous cycles. And then you do have the the green initiative, too. Um, you know, while progress has been uneven and uh, the Russia-Ukraine clash has has forced some countries to step back a bit just to keep the lights on in terms of firing up coal-powered plants, the broad trend is is uh, uh, accelerating. And interestingly, you know, I think China's got a pretty big uh, lead in this space. So, um 
uh, I think Chinese demand for oil uh, is going to soften over time, not harden. So all, all in all, it's an understandable move, but I don't think in the long run that the impact is going to be anywhere near as <laughs> big as, as perhaps some of the commentary and the initial price spike suggests. Yeah, um, we did see investors respond um, for energy sector funds. We did see a $200 million inflow this past week, um, and that was masking a quite a significant outflow for oil funds for the second week running. So we did see some movement on that side. Among other data that EPFR tracks, uh, major oil producing nations found little interest in the EM space, um, like you just spoke about China equity a little bit, um, and a region that imports nearly all of the oil that it uses, Japan, saw their two-week inflow run come to an end. How could this decision, I guess, influence investor sentiment for Japan equity funds? Obviously, the short-term hit <laughs> um, to their input costs isn't insignificant. Um, I suspect with Japan, though, that other things are at work there. Uh, there's considerable uncertainty as to whether Japan can continue with the highly accommodative monetary policies that have characterized the past decade. Uh, part of those monetary policies include uh, buying uh, domestic ETFs to keep a floor under uh, Japan's equity markets. Uh, uh, and I think we're seeing a certain amount of precautionary moving in case the uh, you know, change of leadership uh, at the Bank of Japan in, is seen by that body as an opportunity to perhaps tweak policies that uh, certainly the market is pretty skeptical of now. Uh, the Bank of Japan's yield control policy on the 10-year bond has been repeatedly challenged over the last few months. Um, and uh, a lot of their... <laughs> Uh, firepower has been devoted to sort of buying up bonds to sort of maintain their particular yield targets. So I think while oil certainly didn't make, uh, didn't help Japan equity funds this past week, I think sort of broader domestic issues uh, played as big a role in the outflows. That makes sense. Do you think the change in the Bank of Japan's yield curve control policy or potential change, I guess, is likely to happen in the first half of the year? Or will investors be waiting for quite some time? I think actually that that aspect of the policy may be the first to see a tweak. Uh, the, the Bank of Japan has already sort of given more than a nod to market forces, you know, increase the upper band of the yield. But, uh, you know, it continues to be challenged. Uh, and I think uh, when the outgoing Governor Kuroda leaves, uh, you know, determination to sort of protect that band, some of it may leave with him. So, um, you know, and it's a, fa it's a fairly straightforward way to signal to the markets that, um, you know, things have changed while at the same time basically giving markets something they're already pretty much taking for themselves. So earlier you briefly mentioned um, that China's economic rebound story might not be as great as we kind of anticipated. Um, 
We also kind of noted the rebound in demand for services in the Eurozone and the latest Global Navigator. Uh, Do you think that growth is showing signs of resilience in that region or area? Well, in terms of the Eurozone, uh, they're a little further behind in terms of their sort of catch-up rebound. Um, Whereas, uh, you know, in China, again, I think there's some different forces at work, which include, you know, policy goals that suggest China's going to internalize as much of the accelerated growth they achieve, uh, you know, as they possibly can. I mean, they obviously have to or want to keep their exports sector as healthy as possible. Um, but they're, you know, really interested in uh, state-owned enterprises and in sort of bolstering them, um, and they're continuing to reorganize somewhat along political lines, uh, you know, various corners of their economy. Uh, Alibaba's uh, restructuring into six divisions that was announced recently, uh, I think that had a fairly big effect, didn't it, on uh, China technology sector funds this past week. Great. Well, thank you, Cam. I think that's all we have time for this week. Um, And I'm sure... We'll dive into more of these topics next week. Great. Thank you. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the EPFR Exchange Podcast. For more information, visit epfr.com or epfr.buzzsprout.com. Interested in joining Cam and Kirsten to talk fund flows and allocation data or have a suggestion for the topic of a future podcast? Email us directly at podcast at epfr.com.